Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this program, Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. Hello, I'm Nancy. And I'm Pete. This week we'll be talking with some people who are both ocularists and anaplastologists. Now I know that ocularists are people who make prosthetic eyes. In fact, we've done an episode of Eyes on Success about that in the past. But I never knew what an anaplastologist was. Apparently, they are people who make prosthetic parts for small body parts, like eyes, noses, ears, etc. And we'll learn a little about both skills today. We'll speak with Barbara Spone Lillo, the owner and founder of Prosthetic Illusions in the Denver area, and her daughter, Chelsea Lillo, who are respectively second and third generation ocularists and anaplastologists, about how these prostheses are made and cared for. But first, for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Barbara and Chelsea. Never stop asking questions, whether that be to your anaplastologist, your ocularist, or your oculoplastic surgeon. Just ask the question so that you can know the, your options and if there is an answer out there or not. The other thing, too, is that when you ask a doctor a question, they respond in the present tense. So in other words, the answer they give you today might not be the answer they give you tomorrow. So just because they said no today doesn't mean a year from now you can't ask the same question again and get a different answer. Because things might have gotten worse or techniques might have evolved or Exactly. Whatever. So, you know, you might get a better answer. The medical field is growing so rapidly. It's hard to keep up with some of the technology and some of the new procedures that they can do. So it's always good to ask. It's really important to think of yourself as part of a team. So the team consists of the patient the ocularist or anaplastologist, and the surgeon. So all three need to be kept in the loop all the time. Let's start by meeting Barb and Chelsea and learning about how they got into the field of anaplastology. Barbara, can you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Barbara Spone Lillo, and I am a certified clinical anaplastologist. And we also have Chelsea here. Hi, I'm Chelsea Lillo. I'm Barbara's daughter, and I'm also a third generation anaplastologist in apprenticeship. So tell us how you got into this field. My story goes back to when I was around 16 years old. I think my mother must have gotten a little bit. Um, bored with me that summer that I turned 16, and she sent me to work with my dad, and I shadowed his students at Stanford Medical Center. And one thing led to the other, and when I was in college, he had a program going at Stanford, and I got into that and graduated with a degree in anaplastology. I then moved to Colorado and started my own practice. Wow. And then Chelsea, what sparked your interest in following up on this family tradition? I actually came back to this field. I went to school and got a degree in psychology. And then after graduating, I took some time and realized I wanted to do something that involved science and art. And then just kind of realized that is what my mother does. And I started working with her in the office administratively. 
and then I started working with her in the lab, and one thing led to another, and I started working to get certified. So in this situation, this seems to have all gotten passed down from generation to generation through the family. How do most people get into this field in general? What's the usual path? I've never heard about this being as an option when you're in high school or college. True. It's kind of a difficult field to get into sometimes. A lot of times you see people in anaplastology and in ocularistry that do work within a family and they kind of take over um, a practice generationally. The other way that people get into the field is somewhat through medical illustration or kind of stumble upon it in their studies. Um, Currently, there's not a specific program in the U.S. There is a program at King's College in London, but there are ways to get certified by kind of putting different courses together. And then the main part of getting certified is apprenticing, and that's where some people struggle to find someone to apprentice because you have to work for someone and someone needs to take the time to show you. So it's kind of hard to get into the field to start that if you don't know a contact or have a definite way to start. And a parent is a good contact. A parent is a very good contact. It works easier. And do you have any idea of about how many people are in this profession in the U.S.? There are under 50 certified anaplastologists in the U.S., And how many ocularists? I think it's maybe in the 200 range or a little less. Generally speaking, it's not that many. So you've mentioned your dad. Mm -hmm. What was his name? His name is Walter Spohn. He was an immigrant from Germany. Uh, He and his family immigrated in the 1920s. They came from one depression to the other. And then I think he was drafted into World I can't remember if he actually joined or was drafted or knew he was going to have to join up in World War II. And he signed up for the dental area. And uh, they had this opportunity for artificial eyes. So he jumped on that and got involved in that. And that's how he ended up working for the VA and then Stanford. Barb and Chelsea are justifiably proud of their father-slash-grandfather, Walter Spohn. He not only is credited with coining the term anaplastology, but also with developing many innovative techniques in the field. You are listening to Eyes on Success. 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 This week's focus topic is how eye and other small prostheses are made and cared for. So many of our listeners may have heard of the term ocularist before, but many people aren't so familiar with the term anaplastology. Can you tell us what that is? Basically, up until World War II, we were importing a lot of glass eyes from the Germans. Obviously, that got a little inconvenient during World War II, so we had to come up with another method of making an artificial eye. So there were a couple of dentists in the Army who came up with a method. Now, you have to understand that dentists know materials really well, and so they created an artificial eye made of methylmethacrylate, which is an acrylic, and then they, as most dentists do, they had all their grunts do the work, and my dad was one of those grunts in the Army at the time. And once he left the Army, he then went to work for the VA system. That's the Veterans Administration. Yes. And he settled in in San Francisco, and he was there so that he saw 
oh my gosh, he saw, you know, World War II veterans, he saw Korean veterans, he saw, um, you know, Vietnam veterans. I mean, he just saw it all. And it was called the Restoration Clinic because they didn't just do artificial eyes. They also did other facial parts, noses, ears, just, you know, whatever it might be. I, I refer to it as small body parts because they did a lot of different things. Also because San Francisco is located in the Bay Area, uh, he had a lot of access to some of the newest materials out there. Dow Corning was located there, so there was a lot of silicone. So they approached him, and he was able to use a lot of those materials in fabrication of different types of body parts. Stanford then found out about him, and um, eventually when he retired from the VA, he went to work for Stanford. And at that time, that's when they, they coined the phrase anaplastology because they needed a word that encompassed everything, and it was basically the study of new plastics. So that's where the word anaplastology came from. And while he was at Stanford, they established a training program through the state of California. It was a joint program through the state of California and Stanford Medical Center. And that's where the anaplastology program that my dad created came from. So even though the name means the study of new plastics, the implication as you use it is study of new plastics for creating prostheses for small body parts. Yes. And for our listeners, we're sitting in their office outside Denver, Colorado, and they have a display case that has a couple of ears and a nose and a finger and a few artificial eyes, one of which is in a piece of a face so that you get the eye and the eyelids and the lashes and some of the surrounding skin. And it all looks quite realistic. That's Except nothing's intent. bleeding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, the whole point is to have the patient blend into uh, the crowd. We don't want the patient to stand out because of their deformity. We want them to be heard for what they're saying, not stared at because of how they look, and that become a distraction. So I was thinking when you're making these different body parts, an ear, a nose, an eye, there's some commonality, but you would think there's some special fabrication issues or design issues about each one. Can you tell us a little bit about you know, how that all works? Well, some of the materials are different. The artificial eye is actually made out of acrylic. It's made out of acrylic. It's very hard and solid. And then everything else is silicone, but we use different types of silicones. Some are softer than others. You can actually glue it on if you need to. Um, sometimes these are uh, attached through magnetic retention and implants. So some of these prostheses, like the ears and the fingers and stuff, you actually make them semi-permanently attached? No, they come on and off every day. Silicone is one of those things where you can put it on, let, let's say it's an ear. Let's say it's a glue-on ear. I mean, you can glue it on, and but you want to take it off each night because it's like wearing a Band-Aid for too long. You know, it gets the skin gets kind of funky underneath if you leave it on too long. So you do want the skin to breathe. Whereas an artificial eye, you want that to just stay in 24-7, you know, most of the time. And then just, you know, it's removed on occasion when you get it polished, like getting your teeth cleaned or something like that. For the most part, you leave it in all the time. Whether or not it's an eye or a facial prosthesis, each form requires the same basic methods of making it. It all includes sculpting and painting and fitting 
to a certain degree that all kind of overlap each other. So there are a lot of common skills here then. Yeah, and it's very detailed work. Mm -hmm. So since most of our listeners are visually impaired, they might be more interested in how eyes might be fabricated. Can you walk us through the process and tell us what goes on, how that is done? Sure. Um, I fit very similarly to the way that glass eyes were originally designed to be fit. So a glass eye is hand-blown, and it's called the empirical method. So basically you look at the socket and you form the opposite of what you see. So a glass eye would be hand-blown, and I use wax and um, a Bunsen burner that heats up my wax, and I form that wax around a ball that simulates the implant, and I carve it according to what I see. Some people like to just fill the socket full of a dental impression material. And I think that's fine if it's used as a guide, but too many people, I think, use it as the exact shape. And when you do that, you're making a puzzle piece fit, which can be kind of a dead weight inside the socket. Now, the socket is kind of like unset jello, so it's a soft material. I mean, your, your tissue is very soft and easily manipulated. So if I can create an eye that's a little bit thinner, a little bit more shallow, I can usually create a little bit of suction. So not only is the eye sitting in there, it's actually being pulled back into your socket a bit. That increases the movement that you get, and it also allows for the eye to not be quite as heavy. So you're not putting as much weight on that lower lid. There's all kinds of benefits to doing that method. Now, it's a skill that maybe takes a little bit longer to learn, Mm -hmm. but I've had great success with it, and I really like it. So before we started uh, talking with the recorder on, you mentioned that there were different philosophies in terms of how eyes were fabricated. Is this what you're talking about here, that this isn't across the board that all ocularists will do it this way, that some do it one way, some do it another? Correct. And I was taught both methods, Mm -hmm. but I've continued to do it that way, and that's the way I teach people Mm -hmm. as well. I've had really good success with it. It's not that you can't have success with the other method as well. I just think it has to be in context of using it as a guide as opposed to, you know, that is, you know, this perfect puzzle piece match. Well, there's often more than one way to skin a cat. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, you know, if, if it works, then you do it. So with either method, is there, I assume you have fitting sessions and you try it in the socket and then you pull it out and you make adjustments back and forth. How involved of a process is that? Okay, so when a patient comes to me, that's usually three appointments. The first appointment is when I do the initial painting of the iris. That's the the colored part. Yes, the main colored part of the eye. And then the second part of that appointment is the fitting. And that's when I, you know, heat up my wax and form it and shape it, cool it off before I try it in and, you know, make various changes to it, set the gaze, that type of thing. And that would be the neutral direction of the way someone's looking. Exactly. Yes. Then the second appointment, I have the eye partially completed. I try it in briefly just to make sure the anatomy 
that I start off with is still there and that see if I need to make any changes. And if everything looks good, then I grind the eye very thin at that point so that I can add all the other colors of the eye, the scleral colors. In other words, where the, the white part of the eye, where the blood vessels are, um, you know, how bloodshot I should make it. I, I try to match it to the other eye, basically. Mm-hmm. And I do highlights to the iris at that point. All the finishing touches of the, the coloration is done at that point. And then on the last appointment, the eye is complete. It's been sealed over with a clear uh, acrylic so that all that color that I've done is laminated or sandwiched in between. And uh, it's all polished. And then I try it in. And sometimes I have to tweak it just a little bit because these are hand polished. Uh, now, those are three appointments, and those are usually done on three different days because of how you know we do scheduling. Can it be done in one day? Yes. Mm. And so if a person comes from out of town, we try to accommodate them and do that. So once the eye has been fabricated and painted, what kind of maintenance or upkeep is there? What kind of problems might people expect? Well, it kind of depends on where you live. We live in Denver, so it's dry, and, you know, we, we've got the beautiful mountains to look at, but you also have that dryness, which can <laughs> make managing an artificial eye a little bit more difficult. I tell people if they want it to feel really great, they should move to the beach. But we don't have a beach, <laughs> so I have a list of things for them to do, uh, one of which is to rinse their socket Uh, twice a day with saline solution and you can do that without removing the eye you just use a little eye cup fill it with saline solution and tip your head back and roll your eye around and that kind of it doesn't clean the eye but it it flushes out the socket all the junk that accumulates during the day or overnight and then the rest of the time if they have an eye that tends to be a little dry there's different types of oils that I recommend and I provide them with a little bottle that they can put those oils in to make it more convenient for them. And it's kind of on an as-needed basis, especially at night, though. Put a little extra oil on at night, and uh, it it just makes things easier to manage in the morning so you don't have all that dry, crusty stuff. Mm -hmm. You can put a humidifier next to your bed at night, and you can pretend like you're at the beach. (laughs) (laughs) So, And then I also recommend they get it polished at least once a year, but in Colorado, sometimes it can be two or three times a year based on the allergies, you know, how cold and dry it is outside, if we have forest fires, you know, things of that nature. I mean, those are all things that truly affect how your eye feels. Mm-hmm. So insurance companies allow you to do all those things. They they see it as, you know, just good maintenance of the eye mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, kind of prevents some infections from occurring. And that way I can also check it and see if it's needing any adjustments. Mm -hmm. Because plastic is great. You can add to it. You can subtract from it and, um, you know, just make it fit just right. And then if if I think you need to see a surgeon to get something, you know, tweaked Mm -hmm. along the way, I can certainly recommend that as well. Is there anything else people need to take care of? If you have an artificial eye, there are things that are going to happen because you have an artificial eye. So you might need an adjustment, or you might need certain types of surgeries. A lot of people look in the mirror and they think, oh, I've got to live with that. And I want to encourage them to realize that they don't have to live with it. There is a difference between cosmetic and reconstructive. 
everything that comes out of my office is considered reconstructive. So cosmetic makes you look better than normal. Reconstructive makes you look more normal. Some of the things that might occur if you have an artificial eye is that your lower lid might become a little droopy. That's a very easy thing for a surgeon to fix, and it's extremely important for you to be aware of it because it's just like the foundation of a house. You can have a beautiful house, but if the basement's all crumbly, the house falls in. If your lower lid is weak and is starting to get droopy, your eye could fall out. That's not cool. So you want to have that corrected surgically. That's not considered cosmetic. That's considered reconstructive. There are things also with the upper eyelid that can uh, create other problems too. And some of these things um, can increase the amount of dryness. And if the dryness is increased, then you can eventually end up with irritation that can lead to infection. These are all things that are correctable. And um, for so many people, they think of it as cosmetic, so they don't pursue it. So I try to give my patients as much information as I can because I want them to be the smartest people out there. And if they decide not to do something or not have a procedure done, it's because they chose not to, not because they didn't know they they could get that procedure done. The saddest thing is when somebody comes in and they say, why didn't somebody tell me that 20 years ago? And it's like, that's not coming out of this office. I want you to know and make very, you know, very well-informed decisions. So the bottom line is if you have an artificial eye, visit your ocularist or anaplastologist and ask about anything that might be an issue and point exactly. it out. Exactly. We've had a number of guests on this show, and we ask our guests if they do have a visual impairment, what the nature of it is, and some of them are quite open. Oh, I had retinoblastoma, and so I had to have my eyes removed, and I've got artificial eyes. But in general, in the general public, it's one of those well-kept secrets. And everybody knows that artificial eyes exist, but really very few people talk about it. So when you get a patient coming in who's just lost an eye or they're about to have one removed, how do you deal with some of these underlying psychological issues, how to handle that situation? You know, what I've learned about that is, okay, if if it's been an ongoing thing where they're slowly losing their sight, usually most patients have come to accept that and and they're usually okay. It's the patient that has a sudden loss of sight. It's just instantaneous, either through trauma or, boy, they were told they have a tumor behind their eye and they can see perfectly fine out of their eye, but in order to save their life, they've got to remove the eye. I mean, that's pretty traumatic. It's, It's one of those things where they need to realize that this is an amputation. I mean, this is a very big deal. And it's a sudden loss. And I remember one time I had a young girl come in, and she was, you know, she had lost it through a freak little accident. And this is like six to eight weeks later. She thinks she's doing great. You know, I make her an eye. She looks fabulous. She looks in the mirror, and she burst into tears. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what happened? Well, what had happened is that she looked in the mirror. She looked normal but she couldn't see. And it's the reality of the fact that she was truly blind that But you know, only in hit her. one eye, so she could right. still see herself. Yeah. And I realized, you know, what was going on. So now every time I have a patient come in that's in a similar situation, I warn them ahead of time that they're going to need to grieve a second time 
that they may not be super happy when they get that eye because, I mean, they'll be happy the way they look, Mm -hmm. but they need to realize that, you know, I can't make them see again. Mm -hmm. And, And they know that, but it's just knowing that it's going to be a little traumatic for them again makes it less traumatic for them because they know ahead of time that this is going to happen. And we spend a lot of time with our patients. Our appointments are anywhere from 45 minutes to two hours. So we often are talking and getting to know them. And it's um, good on both sides so that we can kind of not only consult with them and counsel if needed somewhat, but just get to know them and explain their expectations and what will be happening. And it humanizes the whole situation so that you know, you're not just, oh, my patient. You're this real person who has feelings and emotions, and, and I want to, you know, make sure I cover all my bases and, and make them feel as comfortable as possible. Now for this week's final item, how to learn more about the making and care of prosthetic eyes and other small prostheses, and how to contact our guests, Barbara Spone Lillo and Chelsea Lillo. So if people would like to contact you or find out more about some of these processes, where would you send them? What kind of resources are available? Well, you could find us on our website, which is www.prostheticillusions.com. Or you could also go to, to find out more about anaplastology, you could go to anaplastology.org, and that's A-N-A-P-L-A-S-T-O-L-O-G-Y.org. Do you have a phone number for people who aren't so savvy with the web? Of course. You could call our office at 303-973-8482. You could also go to another anaplastology website, and it's the bcca-cca.org. That's the Board of Certified Clinical Anaplastologists, and it gives you more information about the field. And one other website would be walterspontrust.org, and that is a nonprofit organization that provides education and offers different grants and scholarships to continue education within the field of anaplastology. Presumably set up by your father slash grandfather. Actually, Barb started a Walter Spohn Educational Fund a few years back after Walter passed away in 2003. And then just this past year in 2017, we turned it into the Walter Spohn Trust because we've grown and we're able to do more. So in his honor. Yes, in his honor. That's really cool. Do you have a social media presence? Yes, we do. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash prosthetic illusions. We also have an Instagram account. It's at prosthetic illusions. And as usual, you'll be able to find all that contact information in the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. And we'll also have links to a previous episode of Eyes on Success in which we talked with another ocularist and we can learn a little bit more about the history of the field and different approaches to that skill. 
That's it for show number 1907. Next week on Eyes on Success, we will be reprising an episode from 2014 about blind-friendly architecture. Chris Downey was a practicing architect for about 20 years when he suddenly lost all of his vision. Undaunted, he has continued his work using his new understanding of how people with vision loss experience spaces. And we speak with him about what is important in designing blind-friendly buildings and how he is able to continue being an actively practicing architect. If you have any questions regarding something you've heard about on the show or you'd like to share an idea for a future show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net or call us at 585-210-8094. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. Browse the full archive of programs, find instructions for subscribing to the podcasts, and much more at www.eyesonsuccess.net. You can also find us on iTunes and follow us on Facebook at Eyes on Success or Twitter at underscore Eyes on Success. We hope you will join us again next week for more information and updates on products for accessible living. Thanks for listening to Eyes on Success and have a nice day.